This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your, your Passport to Everywhere. I took my first trip to Harbor Island to write a story for the launch of Town & Country Travel magazine. While exploring pink sand beaches on the Bahamian island, I had the privilege of meeting India Hicks. London native, royal adjacent, and former Ralph Lauren model, she became the issue's cover girl and a friend. India was by my side when I founded Indigari in 2007 and was my first Indigari global conversation when travel came to a halt in March 2020 and I started my first podcast. Over the years, I've had the privilege of watching India flourish as a designer and entrepreneur, publishing four design books and launching numerous show-stopping collections. I've been back to Harbor Island many times since our first collaboration and had the privilege of visiting India at her charming beachside villa that she's called home for the past 26 years. Her beautiful dinner parties and boutique, the Sugar Mill Trading Company, never fail to amaze. She's a true tastemaker, the daughter of designer David Hicks and Lady Pamela Mountbatten, as well as the goddaughter of King Charles. India has brought her posh style to island life, and I'm thrilled to be with her today to hear about her work with Global Empowerment Mission and her latest experiences traveling to Ukraine on aid missions, as well as how she wound up living in the Bahamas and her latest adventures. And later in the episode, India will share her travel tips. Explore the future of travel with Melissa Biggs Bradley on Passport to Everywhere, streaming now on all podcast platforms. And for more on Melissa's work, follow Indigari Travel on Instagram. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. So, India. Where are you right now? I know you've been bopping around lots of different places recently, but I'd love to know where you are and where you've been recently. I am actually, and rather thankfully, back in my own office in the Bahamas where I live, which always sounds like a sort of dichotomy. Can you really have an office in the Bahamas? But you, yes. And I spend most of my time in it because it's where I live and where I work from. However, I have just spent about two months traveling. I was everywhere from Palm Springs to Ukraine, if you can believe it. Um, I think my life is so uh, increasingly unexpected. I went to Key West, um, which I haven't been to many years, and I spoke at a women's club in Key West. Then I went on to Palm Springs, which I'd never been to. And I was invited by Sunnylands, which is the most extraordinary place and foundation. The Annenbergs were friends of my grandparents. So I remember meeting the Annenbergs, but I'd never been to Sunnylands, which now I'm sure many of your listeners know is this extraordinary foundation that has been there for the, for the force of good, really. And that many heads of state and global impactors, if that's a word, meet there but I was really impressed and inspired, not only by Sunnylands, but also the environment of Palm Springs itself. I mean, it is like stepping back in time because it's been preserved so beautifully and people really care and understand it. And then I went into Poland and then from Poland to Kiev. 
And then from Kiev, we went right to the Russian border where I was delivering aid, raising awareness. We did attract some very large donations for the cause, which Global Empowerment Mission, the foundation that I work with, have been heading up now for a year. It was a pretty brutal trip, but a very remarkable one in many ways. But we got so close to the border that we could actually hear the missiles and feel the explosions underneath us. I took two of my kids with me because I thought it was important that they really understood what war was about. They understood what I was doing with this foundation and they understood how impactful it is that we pay attention to what's happening. There was a moment, there was definitely a moment, Melissa, where I was, we were asleep in, it's not quite a hotel, but it was sort of a hotel. There's no power out there. Putin made sure that they had no power at all. And the siren went off at night, which is alerts you that, that a missile may be coming. And you're like, hmm, are we getting out of bed? Are we getting somewhere? And I thought, maybe maybe this has been one step too far. But it was a very meaningful trip. But it was extraordinary because when I came home to England, I sat with my mum and we had a, an amazing chat about war, about the effects of it and about living through it. Because, of course, you know, she had spent five years of her life living through war. And so when you go just for 10 days, you get a tiny piece of it and a tiny taste. But you come home to freedom and to safety and you don't realise how utterly debilitating and demoralizing and crippling it is for people, for nations, for generations to live through that continuous threat. It's shocking, really, really disgusting that in this day and age, war still happens, but how naive I am to think that we'll ever get that solved. Yeah, well, we have to keep hoping, call it naive, but it's incredible. I, I would love to have you talk a little bit more about the foundation, how you got involved. And, and I do want to hear more about what it's like to be there, because I know this wasn't your first trip, but I'm curious about what it was like for you the first time you went and also what it was like to go back with your kids. So first, why don't we start with you talking a little bit about the Empowerment Foundation and how you got involved and what its mission is. Well, Global Empowerment Mission is a very remarkable organization. They're a disaster relief agency, essentially. So when natural disasters occur, such as tornadoes or hurricanes, they are one of the first to be on the ground. Particularly, they were focused in America because that's where their headquarters were. And it was started by an amazing man called Michael Capone. And he himself has a very remarkable journey where he had lost track of his life and his way and he'd become a heroin addict. Then he found recovery. And in his recovery, he found that one of the things that was going to help him in life was helping others. So he himself is just an extraordinary person. So he started this agency and the idea was that you would empower the people on the ground. So it wasn't just a large organization like the Red Cross coming in and then going out again. My close experience with it was after the Hurricane Dorian here in the Bahamas that wiped out two neighboring islands. Global Empowerment went in and they do a sort of one, two, three, where they arrive with the immediate relief. People who are in desperate need of food, warmth battery packs for their phone, even SIM cards for their phone, communication with loved ones that they haven't been able to speak to, and medical as well. So Global Empowerment are there for that. Then they stay on the ground and they find people who are there who are willing to either volunteer or indeed come on into a paid role who can help rebuild um, and get, get people back up, their lives back up and running. And then the third is that they actually really, they rebuild either villages, towns, or more importantly, hurricane shelters. So a very good example was in one of the islands, they rebuilt a school that actually then doubled up as a hurricane shelter. So the next time, God forbid, they have somewhere to go as a community. 
They're also very experienced in understanding that you need to get kids back into school very quickly. There needs to be a framework because obviously the shock and the PTSD that you're carrying after going through a very impactful, devastating natural disaster such that does leave people with a lot of emotional scars. They now have had a lot of experience within America and Australia and Haiti and other countries that have experienced bushfires, earthquakes, natural disasters. They didn't have experience in war. But I think Michael felt very strongly that they were in a position to be able to help. So on the second day of the invasion, Global Empowerment arrived on the ground and they set up a tent and they were there just to help immediately with immediate aid. So boxes of food, blankets, anything that could help them get through the next month. Then they realized actually these people living in refugee camps wasn't wasn't good either. So they partnered with Airbnb to try and get people and families with young kids into an Airbnb accommodation. Then they helped with the evacuee refugee program out into outer Europe. Then they realized that actually what is the most important is is the idea of hope. And actually, I I can't stress enough that when you arrive with this box, this cardboard box, and people may say, you know, what's that really doing? Yes, it's providing immediate need and relief. But also what it is, is it's providing hope. It's letting people know you are not forgotten. And I'm speaking now a year in when you go to those tiny towns and settlements that haven't had any resources, they haven't had any aid come in, they haven't had any foundations who are equipped to get out to them. And when they do see that box, the emotional impact is extraordinary, the the, the tears, the emotion of just knowing you're not forgotten. And there are many villages that we went to on this most recent trip where we found people who've been living in basements for not you know, weeks, but for months, because obviously it's freezing cold temperatures and they're too frightened to come out and the Russians are occupying their their city or they just recently left. It's an extraordinary experience of seeing humanity at its depths. When you do these trips, when you do these humanitarian trips, you see the worst, but you also see the best because you see other people who really care, deeply care, who are either donating their time or finances, or skill sets. So it's this extraordinary roller coaster of emotions. So yes, I've done three trips. The first was to the Medica border during the the refugee crisis when they were first coming through after the invasion. The second was going into Kyiv. We went into Bucha that had been freshly liberated. And that was an extraordinary trip because we met quite a few residents of an apartment building that had been completely destroyed. And there you can tell a personal story. So we met 89-year-old Anna who lost everything. And the foundation was able to say to her, we will, we will return and we will rebuild your home for you. And this trip, I went back to Butcher on part of it and re-met with Anna and to see her in her home was very impactful. When I'm there, it makes a big difference. People then understand what you're seeing and hearing and living through, and they tend to donate in a much more significant way. And we've raised quite a considerable amount of money and are now actually able to rebuild the main part of Butcher itself. And that is a sign of hope for Ukrainians. So really, this foundation is extraordinary. And it's been an amazing learning, um, learning curve for me and understanding how one can actually make a difference as, as part of a team. You know, I, I'm a teeny, teeny, tiny little speck, but a greater, greater part of this is, is actually making a difference. So Ukraine is amazing, but Kiev is extraordinary. I mean, you know, life goes on. And, and I have a shop here in the Bahamas called the Sugar Mill, which is actually where the, the yeah. sugar was originally ground. In Miami swim show last year, obviously, I, you know, Ukraine was fresh in my mind. And we found a Ukrainian designer 
And they said, we're manufacturing in Kiev. That's where our seamstresses are. And it was just amazing that this time I went back and actually went to their building, to their headquarters, met the team, and there they were sewing away. And I said, you know, what, what happens when you when the sirens go off? And they said, happens all the time. They all have these apps that show where the missiles are flying in and out. They kind of know when it's an important one and they've actually got to get up and go down into a shelter. And then they wait there for a couple of hours until they can come back out again. But life goes on, you know, bars are opening, restaurants are happening, pizzas being made, parties are being given, and fashion brands are creating. It, it, it's just extraordinary. When I was there in May, it wasn't like that. It was only just gently, tentatively coming back to life. And I think that, again, is just the exhaustion of war and the getting used to war. You think, you know, you can't just have a capital city shut down. We have to come back to life. And now, of course, actually, when you cross the border from Poland into Ukraine, it's the complete reverse. There are more people going back than there are leaving. That's very encouraging. But it's also that a lot of the women and children realised they didn't want to be in Portugal or in Spain or in England. They wanted to be close to where their fathers and their brothers and their lovers were fighting. And they want to be at home in their country. Wow. Okay. so when you go on one of these humanitarian trips india how long are you there what you mentioned it's not really a hotel i mean the most recent trip when you brought your kids what is it the experience like for you and how can people you know who might be interested get involved and who would you say should do a trip like this and who shouldn't i mean because it's not for everybody you've got to be a pretty i know you and you're a very courageous person and you're also willing to roll up your sleeves and get dirty and do what needs to be done. And that's not for everybody. So what's the experience like? Well, a number of things there. I mean, I don't want to sit on a board. And, and since I worked with them in the Bahamas, they then invited me from a sort of non-executive position to being on the executive board. So now I'm very, very involved with them attending board meetings and, you know, really, really understanding how this foundation can move forward for life, essentially. So I don't want to just sit in my comfortable home trying to raise awareness. I want to actually have lived and understood what's going on as well. But of course, that privilege, essentially, which I do think is a privilege, comes with the fact that I am an executive board member. And so when you are going out to these places, you do, to some extent, want security with you. And those are the teams of people who have experience. And there are a lot of soldiers involved with the planning and the scheduling of how the aid is coming in and out. Because obviously, when you have an 18-wheeler truck filled with very expensive aid... The one thing that Putin would be attracted to is getting rid of that aid. There's obviously a lot of careful, careful consideration in the planning of all of this. There's also a lot of curfews going on. And there's sometimes where you arrive into a city and you've had the mayor and the word go out that you'll be in the school grounds delivering aid. And then suddenly it becomes too dangerous and you're not able to get into that school ground. The aids wait, you know, and you're having to wait now. And so nothing, it takes hours and hours just getting from Poland into Ukraine, into Kyiv. It used to be something like a 40 minute flight. It now takes about 18 hours. Obviously, you're crossing the border. You can take a 13-hour train. You're stopped all the time. Armed guards are coming on and off, checking papers. It's just as one would imagine. So when Michael and I discuss either me or a visitor coming in with them, there are certain criteria that they want you to have have ticked off. And he wants to know, you know, what is your role? What are you actually doing? And so I think it's definitely not for everyone. But there are, I, you know, I've certainly met volunteers who have gone in on their own. They've driven a van across the border and they're doing it on their own. There is a lot of risk in that. And I think people need to be very, very careful and very robust if they're thinking about that. You know, people say, oh, everybody speaks English. They they don't. Not everybody speaks English. And why should they? 
it's Ukraine, it's not England. But I think that having a translator or having some way of being able to communicate is very important as well. The teams that we're traveling with, there's always a translator. He's, he's you know, a soldier or a member of the team. Otherwise, it, it is difficult to understand, you know, do you have children here? What are the needs you have? When was the last aid coming through here? So there's lots of considerations. And there are many people who have very generously and kindly said, oh, we'll come with you. And that is not a decision for me to make. That is a decision for the foundation and for Michael to be making. I don't want people to feel that we're going on a lovely tourist holiday here. We're not. And there are bits that are alarming for sure. And I think that hopefully what I can bring is, is awareness for what they're doing and reassuring people that if you're considering to give money either to the Red Cross or other, other ways, why perhaps you might be more involved with Globe Empowerment, why perhaps this is where you might want to put your money, because you can see direct results, you can speak to the founder, you can be part of a team as far as understanding where your money's going and what the change it will bring about. And were there things, India, that surprised you going with your kids this time in terms of how they responded or what they took from the experience? So when we say kids, of course, you know, one, one, one is my 25-year-old who came with me on, the other, on another trip as well. So he had already been. And interestingly, he said, I'd like to come back again. And we're considering going May or June. And he said, I'd like to be part of that. So he feels very attached to it now. We've made friends there. We see people. He understands the kind of difference this foundation is making, and he wants to be a part of that. My younger kid, my, well, I have five, but the, my youngest boy, 19-year-old Conrad, came with us on this trip, and that was his first time. And each trip's very, very different in the emotion that you're carrying with you, in the danger that you're involved with, in the aid that you're bringing. Everything changes all the time, and it's fascinating. And there are a lot of pre-meetings that you'll sit around a board table, and you'll understand, you'll look at the map, and you'll see... And also the difference of age that's being brought in. You know, can we have mattresses donated from America? There's an awful lot that goes on. And the, the sort of nutritional value of those boxes. Now it's summertime. There will be a difference in what we're handing out. The most valuable thing that we found when we went there in January was generators. Everybody needed a generator because, as we say, Putin has, has made sure that there's no power out there near the borders. And generators are very expensive to get into the country. But then one of the things that Michael discovered was actually what we need to do is we need to support Ukraine itself. We need to support their own economic um, system. So we're trying now to buy only Ukrainian food, only Ukrainian battery packs, only Ukrainian mattresses so that it, it supports, which makes much more sense than expensively shipping in and out from other countries. Use Ukrainian materials and workmen when you're rebuilding these villages or hotels or towns. So back to the kind of taking taking the kids in again, the emotional impact is different for everybody. Everybody has their own personal way of dealing with it. The first time I went at the border, I found it very difficult. I had a Polish girlfriend with me who came and she's a very strong, tough girl who herself had been a refugee. She had self had lived in a refugee camp for a year. So she had known what it was like. So her experience of going back as an adult was very difficult because it brought back a lot of emotion for her. She was incredibly useful and a brilliant traveling companion because she spoke obviously fluent Polish, but also could understand a little bit of Ukrainian and a little bit of Russian, which helped. But that trip was very emotional because it was very fresh. War was very fresh. I was less used to it and, and so much more susceptible. And I think also because it's Ukraine, you're seeing a lot of people that you can relate to. You see them coming across the border, carrying their belongings with their kids and their cats. And you're like, this could be us at any moment. This last trip, I thought I had sort of dealt with it much better. I thought I'd slightly toughened up a bit and that I understood what we were doing and there was a purpose to it. 
there's a lot of energy poured into every day. It's, you know, you get up before dark and you go to bed after dark and most of the time you're living with torchlight or candles. But it was interesting as I got on the plane to leave London to fly back across to the Bahamas, an air stewardess came with a box and you know those cardboard boxes and sometimes they're handing you an ice cream and she took something out of the box and I just started to cry. I couldn't stop. I was completely on my own. She must have thought I was mad. And I think it was just the motion of actually handing something. And I suddenly, all of the pent up emotions that obviously I had been carrying from that trip came out. Poor air hostess. She couldn't understand what she'd done. <laughs> I can imagine that a lot of the power of these trips comes over time. And you're probably there running on adrenaline. And it takes a while to process all of what you've seen and all the people that you've met. I think that's right. So you first got involved with the Global Empowerment Mission when, as you said, there were the horrible hurricanes in the Bahamas. Let's go back to how you ended up in the Bahamas, how long you've been there, and why it's home. I have now lived here for 27 years, which is quite a while when you think about it. And my father had built a very remarkable house on a neighboring island, Windermere, so I had holidayed there as a child. So I knew of Harbour Island and on occasion we were made to come up here to look at the interesting architecture. And of course, all I wanted to do was eat an ice cream. But it was a part of the world that definitely felt very familiar to me. And then David, my now husband, was introduced to it through a cousin of mine to this part of the world. And then he decided he wanted to give up a life in London and do something that felt more adventurous and, and just different to the life he was leading. So he managed a small boutique hotel here on Harbour Island. And we had known each other in a previous life. We re-met and four months later, I was pregnant. And so we decided, right, maybe we'll take our lives one day at a time and we'll see where it leads us. And now we have a house that's filled with five children, three dogs, on and off cats, parrots, tortoises. And this really is where my children think of as home. It is our home. Over the years, obviously, the island has changed a lot. What about it is the same? And what do you think makes it so special? It is changing and it's changing a lot now. And I think that that's a result of COVID because I think we're very close to America. And so I think that there was a lot of feeling that actually the Bahamas was was neighboring and safe. You could get in and out quite quickly, same currency, same language. So I think that a lot of Americans suddenly felt, ah, let's let's find a home there. Let's holiday there. Let's let's trip um, and experience the Bahamas which has been wonderful for obviously the economy of the Bahamas because it runs on tourism. So the two years of COVID shutdown was very alarming for the Bahamas. There is pluses and minuses to that, obviously, on when you've got a very tiny little fragile island and community such as here on Harbour Island. We're only three miles long and half a mile wide. And yes, of course you want progress and you definitely want income for the Bahamians and you want to see everybody to thrive. But you also need to make sure that the jewel in the crown, as Harbour Island is called, is, is kept safe because the value of people coming here and looking after one another is, is enormous. And when it becomes a sort of tourist destination where people don't care about the community anymore and they're just in and out on big fancy boats and big fancy marinas, then you kind of lose what makes this place special. And what makes this place special is that it's always been integrated. And I think that that's really key. There are very few places you find that have always been happily integrated. And I think people care about the community here a lot. It's not just the pink sand beach or the swaying palm trees. It's the people. And that's an important part for me, certainly, of living here. During lockdown, it was an amazing, amazing thing that happened. A group of people came together who all offered different skill sets. And we put together a food bank that really fed the island. 3,000 people were fed every week so that there was no food insecurity during that time. That was a really valuable experience. 
to be part of. And it was amazing to see the community really rise together. Amazing. And the island has become part of your career. I mean, you've got a a lot of different things that you've done with your life. You mentioned the sugar mill and your entertaining books. How has Harbor Island influenced what you've decided to do from a, a professional perspective? A lot, a lot, because I think having lived here and made a life here that is so different and unexpected to what possibly I should have been doing or living is part of my story now. And it's what makes my children feel hopefully adventurous and confident that you don't need to always do what's expected and you can do the unexpected and do it well, or you can do it and make a living from it, or you can do it and have a family or just telling your own story in a different way. I've also been able to to write about my experiences of living on the island, photograph my experiences of living on the island, and hopefully always being conscientious that I am a visitor here, essentially. I may have lived here longer than anywhere else in my life, but you know, you do need to make sure that we're essentially called a seaweed. We come in and we go out again. But I have a Bahamian son, so I feel very, very attached to this island. And I do feel it is absolutely my home. But I also have a very strong connection to England still. You know, my father was one of the great decorators and we have a beautiful, beautiful home that my mother still lives in in England. And essentially, I am English and will remain English. So I think that the two tell the story. I've got the British side and the Bahamian side and both inform what I do, how I design and how I live my life. And so if you are describing the Bahamian side of you, the island side of India, what are your normal routines? What are your favorite ways of living in the Bahamas? And then what do you love most about your time in England? You know, I've just spent a couple of weeks back in Europe, as I said, after Ukraine. I then was in Paris and Switzerland and London and and traveling a lot for work. And um, also I took the kids skiing, which was wonderful. But I do realize how much time is wasted in the travel, in the commuting. And there is a real beauty to island life here where everything is a golf cart ride away. So I actually find that I do an awful lot here, even though life slows down because most of the people here who are visiting the island are going on on holiday time and island time. I find I actually get a lot more done here because there is none of that travel. There's no parking nightmares. There's there's no um, having to go from one store to another to try. and it, It just is an easier way of life. So I also feel very creative when I'm here. I'm always very inspired by mother nature and she couldn't be more evident than she is where where we live so you're able to pack in an awful lot I'm luckily a very energetic person so I start my day early and I do get a lot done hopefully my grandfather was chief of combined operations so I say I'm chief of combined operations of Hibiscus Hill but in that there's also there's fun as well there's fun to be had there's you know pickleball is my new exciting game I love pickleball in England, it's sort of still unheard of, but America, I know you're very into pickleball. So, you know, the, I can nip over and play a game with a group of friends who are also as obsessed. I get to walk my dogs on a three mile pink sand beach. And yet I'm also able to sit for eight or nine hours in an office where I can create and continue with all the projects that I'm involved with. So it's it's a very good lifestyle. There are challenges, obviously health. You know, we have a visiting doctor who comes on and off, not always here. There's no dentist. Schooling for children can be tricky at times. There's no no outings to a museum. If you break your arm, you're definitely uh, screwed. Even the vet, um, there's no vet on the island. So it's living here full time has been very different. But of course, when I moved 27 years ago, there was there was none of the infrastructure that there is now. I mean, now I could nip down to a deli and even find a piece of smoked salmon. 27 years ago, <laughs> I certainly couldn't have done that. 
And so then when you do go back to England, because you do go and visit your mom regularly and spend time in England pretty regularly, what are your favorite parts about being back and, and being British again, so to speak? You know, I'm really lucky in that I'm collaborating with quite a few British companies that I love. So I work with a company that's called Tusting, which has been in the same family since 1875. And I love that I can drive out to Bedford and I can go into their workshops and I can actually see the bags that we have designed being made and being shipped out to customers. I work with Penelope Chilvers. She um, designs collections of shoes. She brought her two kids up as a single mom. She left and went to Spain to try and make a life for herself. So again, just a wonderful, strong woman. Love working with her. And again, it's so lovely to go to her studios, to be able to touch and feel leathers, to be able to design heels, to work together, which of course I can't do here on the island. I do miss seasons. I think being English, I do miss seasons. So I, I love when I get back. I don't mind the rain. I don't mind a drizzly grey day because I'm so lucky in my life here where every day is just about every day is paradise. So I, I do miss the season. So I love that. I also love being able to go to a movie theatre or having the opportunity of going to a design exhibition or visit a museum. So there are big contrasts to the two lives that I live. That's fantastic. And are there other collaborations? I think you were mentioned to me at one point that you were working on some tableware as well. That's right. I work with a company called Pomegranate Inc. that I love, and that's all handbook printed in India. And Angela Beck, the founder there, another wonderful female founder. And I work with a luxury resort wear brand called Hester Bly. And Hester Bly actually is named after two extraordinary women in the 18th and 19th centuries, complete century apart from each other. But they were absolutely remarkable in what they did. Nellie Bly and Lady Hester Stanner. And they're fascinating women that people should spend more time um, studying. And both of them were adventurers and travellers. And so the brand was named after these two women. And everything about the brand I absolutely love. I'm a consultant for it, but we do wonderful collections. Just one a year. Each piece feels like a piece of art that you're investing in because there are only 30 made. You're not going to bump into somebody else wearing a piece of Hester Bly. And it's just an incredible story behind the brand. And when will those come out? So that collection that she launches once a year, we've just launched Melides after Portugal, and I wrote a piece for Indigari about my holiday in Melides in Comporta. Hesperi always finds a location or an environment or a geographical spot that inspires her and the brand to tell a story. So our latest one is Melides, and that collection is out right now, just freshly launched. And in oh. fact, I was in Paris last week doing a trunk show for Hester Bly. Oh, fantastic. So how can people find out about it for future collections? Is there a website? There is a website, hesterbly.com. And you can read all about the two incredible women and see the latest collection there. Fantastic. So you mentioned Portugal and thank you. I know you did a wonderful postcard for us about your trip with your five kids, teenagers and 20 somethings to Portugal. First, let's start with some of the things that you loved most about that trip. And then I would love to talk to you about other family trips. I loved it because I had spent several summers myself in Portugal. Again, my father was invited by a client to create a house and home for them. And he built a house in the Algarve that was very remarkable. There was a sort of a little bit of Portugal had always been inside of me. And Christian Louboutin is a great mate. He now has just created this hotel in Melides. And so we spent time looking around that. It's absolutely bonkers, as you would imagine, but really incredible as well. High-end luxury, but with everything feels unique and individual and different and nothing feels the same. And you feel like you're really in Portugal, I think, which is always key when you go and stay in a hotel. You want to feel you're in the place you're, you're staying in. We had a great time there. We did, we did lots of things, riding bareback down the beaches to just exploring the countryside. And then we went to Lisbon, which was a city I didn't know at all. 
and it's become a real popular destination for not only people to go and live but for people to visit it was just wonderful i loved it it was small enough that you felt intimate it was large enough that it was interesting it's on the ocean so it's thrilling it was just beautiful loved lisbon so now i want to switch gears to get some of your travel tips from lessons you've learned from traveling with your family to some of your favorite destinations around the world first i'll start with over the years as you've traveled with all of the kids because you've got a lot of boys and one girl and a large spread of ages how have you approached where you travel with them how do you keep everybody happy and are there lessons you've learned as you've traveled with your family over the years that you think would be helpful to others it's really really hard making sure that everybody is happy because I have five children, each of them has very different needs and very different expectations of what they'd like on holiday. So Wesley, our eldest, you know, he's working full time, so he only gets two weeks a year, really. So I'm really focused on making sure that if he's coming on a family holiday, we're going to give him a thrill. We're going to give him something he goes back and thinks about. So Europe is interesting for him because he's very close to Florida here in the Bahamas. So we want something that feels completely different. One of the things that we always manage to do at the end of the holiday is to go drift driving. Do you even know what that is? No, I have no idea what that is. No, it's for, it's for literally petrol heads. It's for crazy people like my four boys. And you go to a racetrack in some abandoned field somewhere, but they've actually made it into an actual racetrack. And then they oil the track. So you're driving racing cars at high speed on an oil track. It's absolutely mental. So that's the kind of thing that they like to do. So when you're calmly wandering around Melides, you have to keep in mind, what else can we be doing that these crazy kids are going to be happy with? I think our most memorable trip was my 50th. I hesitated trying to remember how old I am. It was my 50th. And we went to Africa. We went to um, Kenya and Botswana. And we had an extraordinary, extraordinary time, as anyone who's been to Africa knows. And we ended up in South Africa because one of my kids is a big surfer and he wanted to surf that famous surf in Cape Town. But that was just amazing because everybody was happy. Everybody found something somewhere that they just loved about it. And they've all asked, can we go back? Can we go back? This year, I'm just tinkering with the idea of taking them somewhere that I went for work, Cucatana, near Seville in, in Spain. And again, an amazing, amazing family-owned home that they now run for guests and visitors to come and stay in incredible riding, incredible countryside in a wildlife park where there are lynxes prowling around that you hope to see at night. So I hope that we might be able to manage to do that. Yeah, I remember actually seeing your Instagram pictures of the riding there. It looked absolutely spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it is spectacular. Okay, so I have to ask you for a couple of your travel tips. First of all, India, you have always been a style icon. When you're traveling and you've traveled a ton, what are some of the tips that you use either in terms of what you pack clothing wise or uniform wise or beauty wise or health wise? How do you look and feel good when you're traveling? What are some of the tips? I think icon is too big a word, but thank you. I don't think I've quite earned that yet. Experienced traveler might be a better word. It is hard because the airport security and the luggage situation is always such a nightmare that now I'm always trying to go with hand luggage as much as I possibly can. And that takes skill because you want to be able to pack where you don't have to iron. I'm a Virgo, so I can't bear a crease or a crinkle. So I'm always thinking of fabrics that don't need too much ironing. One thing that I have learned over the years is that I like to keep one thing. If I'm doing a long trip or a business trip or even a holiday trip, there's got to be one item of clothing that's a kind of da-da that I save, either for, as in Palm Springs, when I'm actually standing on a stage giving a talk to an audience, that is the dress that I've pulled out by a bit. Or even if I'm traveling, 
through Africa and you're finally making it to Cape Town after several weeks in, in a desert or on the road. So I always like to have a ta-da thing that I've saved at the bottom of the suitcase. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel excited. It makes me feel like this is, this is the end of the trip, but it's a good one. I think that the, also there are many ways that we can just, you know, be healthy now when we travel. I'm not a good example of that. I eat far too much red licorice and drink far too much Diet Coke. But there are ways that you can be much healthier, even traveling through airports now, that there are always the healthy option. I just don't happen to take those. But I do definitely drink a lot of water and all of that. But I think keeping wardrobes simple and maybe color coordinated helps a lot. So your grays, your creams, your blacks does help. And then you can have a fantastic bit of jewelry that you subtly bring out. I recently have been given a, a wonderful ring by a designer called Daniel Draper. And I found her when we were in Switzerland in Verbier. And it's a lovely gold pendant. It's got my names, each of my kids' initials on it. And that is just a piece of jewelry that works with jeans and t-shirt. It works with your total dress at the end of your trip. Um, it works getting on and off aeroplanes. So I like to have now a sensational bit of jewelry that I'm traveling with too. Fantastic. I love the Tada dress. Yeah. <laughs> and what about a couple of favorite things that you did in Palm Springs and favorite things in the Bahamas that you think people should do when they visit Harbor Island? There's a sort of very obvious list of, in Harbor Island. You know, there aren't that many restaurants, so you probably have time to experience them all. There are now the very obvious touristy things that you do, which is to go and feed the swimming pigs. You know, I try to discourage people from going to feed the swimming pigs because the poor pigs, they shouldn't be being fed hot dogs for obvious reasons. But I think that there are also just wonderful, you know, the, 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 there are so many surrounding beaches. There's a Luthra to go and explore. So I think people need to get off Harbour Island as well and be a bit more adventurous. There's a surfer's beach down on Luthra. There are lots of little amazing communities down Luthra, and it's just a boat ride away. I would try to encourage people to explore a little bit more. Also, you can hire a seaplane now, which is so romantic. And if you get two families doing it together, the cost isn't so astronomical. I'm always very conscious of cost and budget because not everybody is, is able to travel the way we'd all like to travel. But I think, you know, two families together renting a seaplane and just that experience of taking off on water and just actually feeling like you're in the Bahamas is important. And I think you mentioned the other city. Where, where else did you mention? Palm Springs. I just would oh, love, Palm other than Sunnylands, did you find things, restaurants or shops? Yes, or lots of restaurants and shops in Palm Springs. And lots of diverse things to sort of be doing and feeling. You can kind of, you know, be the hippie on the street with the, with the guitar or you can be very high end at the Parker Hotel. That There's lots of variations. But I think the kind of vintage shopping is exciting there. You can really hunt and find things that are no, nowhere near the cost of L.A., or San Francisco. And especially for furniture, you can go and find antique stores that have got really exciting mid-century furniture that is definitely worth investing in and shipping out. I didn't, I didn't, and I should have, and I regret it. I should have taken another day to do that because it's so inexpensive and it's so exciting when you find something. I'm so glad to hear it. I haven't been there in a while, but that's exactly the way it was the last time I was there. And I'm glad it's still that way. And I have to ask, as someone who loves design and is an incredible decorator in your own right, what is your favorite memento that you've brought back from a trip? Uh, shark's jaw. Um, Again, David and I were traveling in Kenya and we came across a, a market in the middle of absolutely nowhere and there was that shark's jaw and we were just so riveted by it and we packed it in a suitcase. I'm sure you're not able to nowadays travel with a shark's jaw in your suitcase. 
and we brought it back here to the island. We slightly measured the growth of our children by them holding the shark straw around their little faces and as they would grow the shark straw. But anyway, the point of this is that don't actually travel with a freshly caught shark straw because your suitcase will stink for years. I don't know if vacations were relaxing as the number one priority as your cup of tea, but do you have a favorite destination for relaxing? I don't do relaxing terribly well. I think I'm going to go to Costa Rica because my kids can surf and I love the quad bikes and I love the mountains and I love everything about Costa Rica. Or I think I'm going to go to Iceland because if we can hike and we can fish and we can see whales and we can do all that. So I don't really go anywhere to relax, probably my bath. Do you have a favorite destination for exploring? You know, again, I've, I've been very lucky to explore a great deal. Firstly, when I was modeling, I went around the world and saw amazing places that I would never otherwise have been able to see. And I took a year to travel myself with a backpack and, and went to Burma and Nepal and again, amazing, amazing countries, which really you, you need to just be traveling with a backpack for. And with David, we've also traveled a lot and we try to travel quite a bit with our kids as well. And life I do see is an adventure that we need to take full advantage of. But I did do an amazing trip to Iceland, but I didn't get to see enough of the country. Um, and it really struck me that country. I just felt there was something very, very, very powerful about it. What I loved was we stayed in this beautiful, tiny, tiny little hotel called the Eleven Experience, Deckham Farm, and just, I mean, sensational, the surrounding views, everything about it was sensational. But, you know, you have a wonderful, a wonderful girl who's hosting it, and, and she'll show you to your room, and she's there also showing you what you'd like to eat for dinner, and then you realize that she's actually an Olympic ice skier, um, yeah. and everybody in Iceland has all sorts of different jobs. You're, you're an Olympic champion. You're also working in the hotel. And I love that about it as well. It's a tiny, tiny country and a tiny community and just amazing people. Okay, so what's next on your wish list? We're hoping to do something together in England, I know, in June, you and I. Absolutely, because I just think my father's garden is really beautiful and very sensational. And it sort of needs rediscovering by people. And yeah. I'd love to be able to host you know, a small handful of intimate friends and friends of Melissa to come yeah. round and look at it and it's not in its perfect form of glory but it it still has such charm to it and it's very English and yet it's very David Hicks in its appeal yeah. and the straight lines and the geometry of it all and it's a garden that he designed both for winter and for summer which I think is clever too so I think that that's a little bit of a hidden bit and we're so close to London I know you've got a Cotswolds trip and that's just a little bit further we're so easy to get to so yes there's that you know, I just did an amazing trip to Australia before Christmas. I was invited to go out there and speak at a number of events and to work with a couple of fashion houses out there. And I took my daughter with me. So I had a very efficient 15-year-old assistant with me. There were times where she was lying, TikToking and eating donuts. And I had to remind her, you are the assistant. Hello. But we had an incredible trip together. And I'd just forgotten how amazing Australia is. I absolutely loved it from Sydney to the Gold Coast to Melbourne. There's just so much to explore in that one place. The problem with Australia is it's very far away from Europe. It is. When I say that to Australians, they say, yeah, but we're very close to Asia. So, you know, it depends where you're coming from. And you're like, okay, but it's far. You feel as though you've gone to Mars. It's so far. You've gone to Mars. Also, if you have a globe and you poke a hole through it, Harbour Island to Sydney, I think it's the furthest you can get from one edge of the world to the other. And I did that. It takes a little time to recover. Yeah. Well, fantastic. India, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. And I cannot wait to see you in England soon, I hope. And thank you again for sharing all of these experiences, especially 
what you do in Ukraine and what you've been doing with the Global Empowerment Mission, because it is just so important for all of us to remember all of those people and to provide hope. So please share with us the best way for people to contribute, to donate, and to stay in touch and informed about the project. Well, that's very easy, globalempowermentmission.com. And when you get there, there are lots of Turkey is there right now as well as uh, you can donate for there for the appalling earthquakes that happened there or Ukraine. There are many, many ways and different places to be donating to, which also I think works because you have to feel quite invested in your donation and you want to be able to know that you're, first it's going to the right place and that you, you want it to go to where you feel most attached to. Well, thank you again. Sending you a big hug. All right, Take care. Lots of love. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Passport to Everywhere. I want to thank our guest and my friend India Hicks for being with us today and taking the time to discuss her travels in Ukraine, life in the Bahamas, her design work, and travel tips. To learn more about India, check out her website at indiahicks.com and Instagram at indiahicksstyle. To learn more about the Global Empowerment Mission, visit globalempowermentmission.org. I hope you found our conversation as moving as I did. Next week, I'll be speaking to Laudomia Pucci, the daughter of fashion legend Emilio Pucci, and a fashion mogul in her own right. We'll dive into how she's keeping the Pucci legacy alive and why Florence will always be her home. In the meantime, I'd love to hear about your best and worst travel experiences, any travel hacks you'd like to hear me address on the show, any guests you'd like me to interview, and of course, your questions. So leave a message at 646-535-7297. Send us a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Thank you for listening to the show and do rate it and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so more passionate travelers will discover us. Episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com or call us at 646 535 7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. everywhere.